Good morning. I'm happy to be back with you again. We enjoyed visiting with you in January, and we're really excited about the things that the Lord was doing at your church and sort of the, the mix of uh, people with different convictions and young families that God had brought all together here. Um, in some ways, it reminds us of, of our church, Christ the King of Belfast. We were excited about uh, Grace then and still are now glad to be, to be back. We're going to be in Psalm 98 this morning. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Psalm 98. This psalm is considered by some to be a royal psalm, and this makes sense as the Lord is seen here both as king and judge. It's also a psalm about singing. Spurgeon likened it to a coronation hymn. The royal aspects of the psalm and the musical aspects are not disparate, but they're unified. The reign of a good king should produce joy in his subjects. By definition, a psalm is a sacred song sung with musical accompaniment. And this psalm, a lot of the psalms have a a title or a superscription or a subscription. This one simply has the subscription, a psalm. It's just titled, a psalm. I would like us to look at this psalm and consider it as a pattern and a type for Christian singing. The readers of this psalm are instructed in the first line to sing a new song to the Lord. Our focus today will primarily be on this concept of new song. These are the words of God as I read Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray together on behalf of the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all of your good gifts to us. We thank you for this body here, which is your body. We pray that you would feed grace this morning, feed this church with your word. We pray that you would feed our souls. We pray that you would come and meet with us. We pray that you would anoint both the preaching of the word and the hearing of it with the power of your spirit. We ask for this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We should talk first about the nature of singing. This is going to be a sermon about singing. And a helpful way that some theologians have described singing is to describe it as speech, which is made to sound beautiful or glorified speech. When we sing, we are speaking. We're doing more than speaking. We're doing it with different pitch and rhythm and beauty, but we're not doing less than speaking. 
The beauty of Christian worship ought to not just be pitch and rhythm and timing. It ought to be um, truth. It ought to be the correspondence between true things which are being sung and hearts which truly believe them. Singing is the right expression of hearts that are filled with joy. It is what overflows out of God's people when they have been filled with his grace and goodness and love. God acts on our behalf. He's loving towards us, kind towards us, good towards us, and we respond to him with thanksgiving, with praise, and with song. This is one of the reasons why church services, I think yours does this, ours does this, often places a hymn after the sermon, right? So you get to hear God's word, and then you get to stand up, and you have a chance to respond with worship. That's the goal. That's the hope. The outward expression of inward joy is why we sing the national anthem. It's why a man will sing to the woman that he is pursuing. It's why we sing at weddings, right? I once went to a a wedding. It was um, a friend of my wife's wedding, and it was beautiful. It was a Christian wedding. They, they, I think, purposely tried to have the gospel preached. Um, it was a, a God-honoring Christian wedding, but there was no place for the congregation to respond with singing. And in my mind, that was a big oversight. It was, a, in a lot of ways, a, a worship service and no chance for us to get up and express our thanksgiving to what God was doing by bringing this man and woman together. God's design for our happiness and for our joy and for our response to him with song is very good. But there's, there's a problem, right? As we all know, this ideal is lost often on our world, and it's lost often on the church. If you turn on your radio in the morning on the way to work, you will hear ugly things, you will hear dark things, you will hear lies. God made his world very good, But sin has spoiled it. The sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, spoiled it. And our sin has spoiled it. The sin in our hearts is is always trying to take away our joy, right? It's it's this internal thing, this sin that we want to do. And it, it promises us its own kind of joy, but it's not something that it can deliver. It can only steal joy, and it can only stifle song. So our joy and our singing are being fought on the internal level, but they're also being fought on the external level. We live in a world that is full of evil outside of us. How can you sing in a world that is still filled with human trafficking, organ harvesting in China, abortion? How can we sing in a world where these things still regularly go on, sometimes right under our noses? How can you sing in a culture that has bought into the sexual perversion and insanity and confusion. Um, We want to raise kids here. We want to raise them to be joyous and know the Lord. And we're going to send them out into this place that is going to absolutely try to spin them away from the Lord. How How can we sing in that kind of a world? Because of sin and evil, what I'm saying, both the internal and the external sin and evil, our world has lost its song. Our world needs a new song. This psalm, like others before it and like others after it, like other parts of the Bible, will teach us this new song. When God commands us to sing a new song, he's not asking us to do something that he's never seen before. 
He's not, this is not God at a party asking for a trick that he's never seen before, as if we could do something new that would be novel and surprising for God. He's not commanding us, do, do something I've never seen before, right? So the question is, what is he, what is he doing? When, he, when we're commanded here in Psalm 98, sing a new song to the Lord, what does that mean? What is, what is this new song? My argument, my thesis, is that the new song is the song of God's redemption. The new song is the song of God's redemption. It is the song of the victory of God. The new song is the song of the salvation of God. It is the song that God puts into the hearts of people that he has made new creatures. The song is about the person of God and the things which he has accomplished in the world and on our behalf. The new song is the song of the renewal of the earth and of God's people. This psalm addresses both. You'll see later on that the earth itself is being um, made new and responding to God in song. With that, let's begin. The first thing that I would like us to consider from this psalm, or about the new song, really, is that it's actually an old song. So the first thing, this new song, what is it? And the first thing that I would like us to take away from this concept of new song is that it's actually really old. I'd like to convince you that it has deep historical roots. If it is the song of redemption, which I'm arguing that it is, then its content has existed not only in the mind of God for eternity past, but also at least since Genesis 3.15, right? You've got Adam and Eve in the garden. They've fallen, and God says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to send somebody that's going to take care of this snake problem that you have here in the garden. The concept of redemption is, is old, and so if, if that's the content of the song, then that is old as well. The new song is ancient, The foundation of the new song is based on things which God has already done, things that he has done in the past. The new song, uh, we get these, we see these parts here and we see them in other places in the Bible. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this is rough. This is not a, a thorough study of the concept of new song. I think you could do that and it would be exciting, but these were some of the themes that I saw emerging in this concept of new song. So here are the, here are the rough parts that we're going to see, uh, repeated You're going to see this new song made up of the victory and salvation of God, the power of God, and there's uh, this is pretty consistent that there's usually a reference to God's hand or his arm in connection with his power. His arm is able to accomplish great things uh, because he is powerful. So we've got the victory and salvation of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God to his people. In our psalm, that's the people of Israel. We see that specifically God is faithful to his people. And then what we see is that his kingdom is being extended from his people all the way out to the ends of the earth. And the earth itself, the creation itself, is being brought into the song. And all of the peoples around the whole world are being brought in. That's clear Old Testament teaching. We, we sometimes feel like, oh, we're New Testament, we're the Gentile churches. Thank God that we get to be a part of uh, what God's covenant. But um, it's really clear Old Testament teaching the whole time God's plan of redemption and the song of redemption is for the whole world. We see that here multiple times. The earth is commanded to join into this. Those are the basic parts that, that make up uh, the new song. We're going to look at this in a few different places. So here we go. Verses 1 to 3, I'll read again for you. 
It says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is a normal pattern in the Bible. We see this frequently when the Bible tells you to do something. It's usually based on something that's been done for you already. This is imperative indicative. You're not usually given an imperative, which is a command to do something, without having already been given as the foundation of that imperative some kind of indicative either about you or about God or the nature of the world. You are commanded here to sing, but you're not commanded here to sing based on nothing. This is not sing because dad said so. Um, it's a, it is that, but it's a lot more than that, right? Our Father in Heaven is telling us to sing, and he's going to give us all of the reasons why we ought to sing, all of the things that he has done on our behalf that should produce worship in us. You are commanded specifically to sing in response to the marvels of God, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The power of his right hand has gained victory for him. He has made known his salvation. The command to sing is based on the, the accomplishments of God, but it's not only based on the accomplishments of God. It's not only based on the things that he's done. It's also based on who he is. Um, and his person, and his character, his attributes. Listen to this. It says, He has revealed his righteousness, that's a character trait, in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love, character trait, and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Since God has done marvelous things, we should sing with, with wonder. He has built a world from nothing with his own hands and made a people for himself out of sinners. Praise God. Since our God is a righteous and regal king, we should worship him with humility and godly fear. Since our God is merciful, kind, and faithful, we should also sing with affection towards him. It should produce love in our hearts towards God, both what he has done and who he is. Our sin has spoiled God's world, But God has done something about it. God has acted on our behalf in history and accomplished things for us. Rejoice. I'd like to give you another example from your Old Testaments uh, of this new song pattern. It's sort of a rough pattern that it follows, but you'll see some of the the ways that it's the same. Um, You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. I'm going to go to Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is where we find what's called the Song of Moses. This was given by God to Moses to teach to the people of Israel after they had crossed the Red Sea. So they've been brought out of Egypt. They've been saved um, by the amazing power of God at the Red Sea from the Egyptian army. And then they're on the other side, and God says to Moses, teach this song to the people. I'm going to read selections. I'm not going to read all the way through Exodus 15. I'm going to read, uh, I'll tell you what verses I'm reading, just so that you can get a taste of it without having to read the whole thing. This is verse 1 of Exodus 15. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. 
This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 13, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. We see God's faithfulness to his people there. And then verses 14 and 15, the peoples have heard. He's done this in the sight of the nations. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So you see that God's salvation for Israel is worked in the sight of the nations. And the goal in that, God's goal in that, has always been to bring the nations into what he was doing with Israel. The parallels, in my mind, between these two songs, there's a song in Psalm 98 and then the song of Moses in Exodus 15, the parallels are striking. There's, there's a pattern there. It seems possible to me that the writer of Psalm 98, possibly David, is alluding to the song of Moses. Uh, that seems like a possibility. You could see that fit with... Um, us being commanded to rejoice in the wonders that were done and the, the ten wonders in Egypt and then the crossing of the Red Sea. That's a possibility. Here's what I would like us to remember from, from this point. I want us to recognize that Christian singing ought to be historically rooted. It ought to be based in what God has done in the past, in the, in the forever back past, in the creation of the world, in his... Um, redemption in his calling a people, making a people, all of these different things, Christian singing, I'm arguing, should be historically grounded. Revelation 15.3 says that the saints in heaven are still singing the song of Moses. I was really blown away when I read this. We all know the song of the Lamb from Revelation, and we'll get there. Um, you know, sing a new song to the, to the Lamb, worthy are you who has slain. We'll get there. But what's amazing is you read Revelation 15, and it says that they're actually still singing the song of Moses. It says, and they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. I was, I was amazed by that. It's still fresh. It's still good. It's still true. It's still the salvation of God, and it's the foundation of our salvation. If the saints in heaven are still singing it, why wouldn't, why wouldn't we? Um, and I, I read, I didn't look this up, but I read that some hymnals will contain uh, possibly the song of Miriam, which you get right after the song of Moses. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to find the song of Moses show up uh, in, in some of the, the hymnals. That wouldn't surprise me at all. If the Old Testament belongs to Christians, why aren't we singing the Psalms? I think we may have fallen for the fallacy in Huxley's Brave New World that what's newest is best. And um, I, I don't think that that's true. I want to argue that our singing should be grounded in the Bible, in the songs of the Bible, in the, in the Psalms. Um, it's something that we've started doing um, a while back now at Christ the King is Psalm singing. And I don't want to, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgy if you guys aren't doing that here, but I would argue for it. I would say this is good. This is our heritage. This belongs to us. And I think it would get our minds oriented in the Bible and in history properly if we would use some of the songs that the Bible gives to us. And we have 150 of them centered in the very middle of our Bible. Um, I, I would argue that we take advantage of that. 
Some churches, I'm glad you guys haven't, have even given up hymn singing. I, I love the hymns that we do here, uh, that we did here this morning, and that we do at our church. Should Fanny Crosby's plea that Jesus keep her near the cross not be ours? If Isaac Watts sang the almighty power of God, shouldn't we? Is Luther's God not only his fortress, but ours? We still sing, many of you will know this, let all mortal flesh keep silence at uh, Christmas. That dates back possibly to the 5th century. Um, And some of you might know of the Father's love begotten. Does anybody know that one? That's another, um, another one that sometimes will show up at Christmas, and that goes back to the, to the fourth century. And what I'm saying is that this is, this is a good thing, that we would start with the Bible and then work through church history and um, maintain a historical groundedness in singing the songs that the church has given to us over these thousands and thousands of years. It is my claim that Psalm 98 demonstrates that the new song is old, that the new song is grounded in history. It's my claim that other Bible songs support this idea, but it's not my only claim. And that brings me to the second point, uh, which is that while the new song is an old song, it's also a new song in some ways. I couldn't help but think of the Apostle John's uh, first letter as as I was writing this. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment, but it's not a new commandment. It's actually an old commandment, but it is actually a new commandment. And it's sort of like that with this new song concept, right? It's new. Do something new. It's actually really old, but it's new. It's actually new. And so we, we sort of feel that um, with uh, John's commandment, with the new song, and even the concept of the new covenant, right? How old is the new covenant? How new is the new covenant? And uh, boom, you have a split between Baptists and Pado-Baptists for, for <laughs> a long time, right? And so it's, um, the Bible does this to us in a, in a few places. There's newness and freshness, and there's also continuity and historical connectedness. So the new song isn't just old, it's new. And let's look together at verses 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praise. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. All the earth is commanded to praise God with joyous song. Musicians of all kinds are instructed to get their instruments ready for the service of God. I argue first that Christian singing should have its foundation in the Bible and church history, and I'd like to turn our attention now to this concept of contemporary songwriting. The verses that we just read imply musical creativity. Um, they're also in the imperative mood. There's a command being given here. So some of the, some of the verbs in the first section are um, imperfect or perfect, I forget what it is, but they're, they're past tense. And here we've got imperative. And so the, the point is we're being given a command to do something now. And we've sort of moved into the present tense. The command to sing and make music apply to you now. The earth is commanded to make a joyful noise to the Lord now. The people are commanded to sing joyfully and play skillfully now. So I feel confident at this point, some of you would be asking about the legitimacy of contemporary songwriting. If I'm going to come in here and argue for psalm singing and for old hymns and songs of the Bible, no doubt somebody in here is going to say, well, what about, what about what's being played on the Christian radio? What about... Um, you know, what the Gettys are doing. What about contemporary Christian songwriting? Is there a place for this? 
Are we only allowed to sing songs out of the Bible? Are we only allowed to sing um, the Psalms? Or are we allowed to write new songs? Are we allowed to sing new songs in church that have been written by others? My conviction is that the answer is yes. Absolutely. We should write new songs. We should sing new songs. We see that happening in the Bible. Uh, you know, they get added. And then we see that happening in church history, right? They get added. There's new songs that are written. And then the church, they become sort of property of the church. And then we have this canon that is built, this, this collection of hymns that the church sort of curates over time. And, and sort of the best ones get to stay. And we still sing them sometimes 1,500 years later. Yes, we should do this. It's my conviction that we are free to consider Bible passages. This is part of the argument with psalm singing is that, well, it's better if we just, say, if we just do it just the way that it is. And I'm not a teetotaler about psalms only, no music, any, anything like that. But that's part of the argument. It's, well, if we're going to sing it, we might, it would be better just to do it verbatim out of the Bible. My conviction is that we're, there's more freedom in our singing than that. I think we're allowed to think about a passage. I think we're allowed to respond to a passage. I think we're allowed to say something about a passage. One of the ways that that happens is preaching. I feel like if, you, if you're going to argue for psalms only the way they come out of the Bible, it's hard to argue for preaching instead of just reading word by word out of the Bible. But I think we are free to do this. I think we're commanded to preach, and I think we're free to consider and respond to the Bible and to write songs about it. There's warrant, even here in Psalm 98, for musical and lyrical creativity. But I would give you this warning. Some of the dark and false and ugly things that you might hear on your commute to work might be on the Christian radio station. Not condemning Christian radio at all. Not con condemning contemporary songwriting. My concern is that sometimes when you're listening to the Christian radio station, some of the things that you're hearing have completely ignored the pattern of songwriting from the Bible. They've ignored the Psalms, the, the song of Moses, Miriam, Mary's song, all of these kinds of things, and totally broken away from the church's historical roots of singing and, and done something completely brand new. And I, I would give a warning about that. The scriptures give us model songs, and I'm arguing that songwriters should take their cues from the songs in the Bible. Not that they shouldn't write new songs, they should, but they should be patterned on the shape that the Bible gives us. And I'm saying this new song concept sort of gives us that, that shape. It's like the Lord's Prayer in a lot of ways. You guys are familiar with the, with the Lord's Prayer, right? And so before we learn the Lord's Prayer, how are we tempted to pray? We go to the Lord and we say, Dear Lord, me, 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 I, 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 me, 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 amen, right? And then the, the Lord teaches us how to pray. He teaches his disciples how to pray and all of a sudden, it's totally different, right? He teaches us to pray, our Father, right? So all of a sudden, it's not just me anymore. It's us together. We're a body. Our Father. Your name, your will, your kingdom, and your glory. Amen. I think that the new song pattern in the Bible does something like that for us. It should teach us how to sing. We're not forbidden from making up prayers by the Lord's Prayer. It's a model. It's an example. It teaches us how to pray, how our heart should be oriented towards Christ's body and towards the Lord himself. The concept of new song, I think, will do the same thing for us. 
You, Lord, your hand, your power, your salvation, your people, your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Songs that follow the new song pattern will be God-centered, God-honoring, redemptive, humble, thankful. So next time you're listening to the radio in your car, pay attention. If the song is about our great God who has done great things, amen. Some of them are. If you can't tell whether or not it was written about God or about the author's girlfriend, you know, maybe consider some silence on the way to work instead. The things which we hear sung come out of the heart of the writer, and they can enter ours through uh, our heart through our ears. We want to be careful about that. Before we move on, I'd like to give you one more example of a, of a Bible song. This time we're going to look at a New Testament example. This is the song of Mary. It's also known as Mary's Magnificat. We find this in uh, Luke chapter 1. I'll read, I'll read Mary's song for you. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The themes are the, are the same. Can you see that? Can you see how, how you could sort of overlay these and you, there's significant continuity between these songs? It's about God. It's about God's accomplishment on behalf of Mary and God's accomplishments on behalf of his people generally. There's a reference to the strength of his arm and his power, the faithfulness of God, and his generosity to the whole world. This is the new song, and we can see that as redemptive history progresses, it's, it's carried forward. It isn't dropped. It isn't left. It's brought forward, and it's made to be more clear and to have more fullness of understanding with it. The last point that I'd like to make is that the new song is eschatological. It is rooted in the work of God in the past. It belongs to all the saints throughout all history, and it anticipates the future fullness of the kingdom of God. Listen to verses 7 to 9 of Psalm 98. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Creation is commanded to make music, to worship the Lord for all the things that he will do. Verse 9 says that he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You've noticed by now that Psalm 98 has a past, present, and future motif. And what I've tried to do is overlay the concept of new song on top of that. This is sort of both an exegetical sermon and a topical sermon uh, at the same time. Um, 
So I've sort of tried to overlay that on one on top of the other. So let's consider for a second the future of the new song. Matthew Henry said that the new song is that which is sung in the new Jerusalem. My conviction is that the church is the new Jerusalem, that you, you are the new Jerusalem, but that it's a city under construction. There is a sense, with, a sense in which the redemption of God is complete, and there is a sense in which it is not complete. Sometimes in theology, there's a distinction made between redemption and restoration for this purpose. God has purchased the redemption of the world and of his people by the work of Christ on the cross, and he is now ruling at the right hand of the Father to put things back in order. You see the distinction there between redemption and restoration. Redemption is complete. Restoration is not. The world is uh, not all things. We don't see all things yet in subjection under God. But at some point, we will. And the new song um, has these future uh, eschatological aspects to it as well. The new song addresses the ways in which heaven has already come to earth, but it also addresses and recognizes that it has not yet fully come to earth. Listen to the new song as we find it in Revelation chapter 5. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The new song of redemption of God finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. His life earned a salvation for us that we could never earn. His death won the victory over sin and Satan. His resurrection demonstrated the power of God's hand over even death itself. His ascension into heaven was to receive a throne and a scepter from where he would rule over the nations. In conclusion, this psalm is a call to the whole world to sing. God has redeemed the world from bondage and given it every reason to rejoice. He has accomplished great things in history and in the history of the church. He is with us now and in the present. He is with us now in the present and he has prepared a future for us filled with joy and free from sorrow. Sing to God the new song because you have been given new hearts. Sing to God because he has given us a new heavens and a new earth. Sing to God because you are the new Jerusalem. Sing to God because he has given you a new name. Sing to God because you are partakers in the new covenant. Minister to one another in song when you're discouraged. Revelation 20, 
21.5 says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'd like to leave you with a few lines from a, a great Isaac Watts hymn, Joy to the World. You all know Joy to the World. You might not have known that it was based on Psalm 98. So our psalm today, I thought this might be a, a fitting way to leave us with just a few lines from uh, Watts' hymn here. Uh, what I think is a great example of singing the new song, doing something fresh and new, and patterning itself on the word of God. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Amen.